So it's time to set up L&D. You might be the person who's been hired to do it. You might have moved internally into the role. You might be the owner or the leader of the business and thinking that this is the solution to the challenges you're facing right now or a good way to prepare for the future. Whoever you are, you're in charge of making it happen and I want to help. I'm on a mission to seed a million thriving learning functions because I believe everyone deserves the opportunity to grow no matter where they work and that the organisation benefits as well. I've had the privilege of setting up the L&D function from scratch at a tech startup turned ASX listed company and I'm in the process of doing it again right now. I am doing a few things differently this time around and in the spirit of learning, I want to share those learnings with you. Stuff that worked, stuff that did not work and interviews with some very clever, passionate people about the stuff that I don't know yet. Welcome to Starting Up L&D, Episode 2. Last time, we talked about some of the main reasons that organisations might decide it's time to establish a formal learning and development function. It's often to solve specific problems, such as product knowledge or understanding the organisation's sales processes, making it hard for salespeople to get customers excited about buying the amazing thing that their business makes. Leadership capabilities, that secret source behind almost everything else the company's trying to do. And those people reasons, such as attracting or retaining talent. Now, despite the fact that our function gets summoned into existence to fight some pretty serious battles, there seems to be this persistent perception that L&D is fluffy and expensive. In case you haven't had this experience yet, there's sometimes a big difference between what L&D does and what people think it does. Deep breaths, Lauren. It's not their fault that they don't understand. By the way, this mantra works for boardrooms as well as family functions. Think about what the average employee expects from L&D. What about their manager? What about whoever's in charge of the money? And the CEO? Each of these groups has some unspoken expectations on what you should be doing. Sometimes these expectations will conflict with each other. Yay! Sometimes they'll conflict with reality. It's not their fault, but we can help. And helping them understand will ultimately help you. So the first step is understanding where they're coming from. To help with that, we're going to start this episode with a dive into L&D history, where it's come from and how it's evolved over time. Don't switch off. I promise it will be interesting. You're in very good hands. I actually used to be a high school chemistry tutor, and if I can get a 15-year-old excited about carbon chemistry, then this is going to be a breeze. What we do has changed a lot over the years, and not everyone's kept up. That's normal. I probably couldn't discuss the finer points of how marketing has evolved as a discipline over time. This is the context that will give you the power, because when you're setting up the L&D function, different people are going to have their own preconceived ideas about what you're there to do. When you know roughly which decade your stakeholders' expectations are sitting in, you can meet them if you have to. And look, sometimes you do just have to meet expectations. But hopefully you can also start working on shifting those expectations so that you can work together to do more of the awesome things that L&D is capable of and get recognition for doing it. Let's dig into the origins of learning and development. Building the skills that people need to do the work has been a thing for a long time. I'm talking back in the 1900s, there were factory schools that focused on trade skills for specific production lines. When you work at the place that makes shoes, 
you get taught how the shoemaking machine works and you work that machine until you retire. More formal workplace training in those skills really kicked in at scale during World War II, when there were big groups of people that needed to learn how to do a huge range of very new and very complicated things very quickly. Remember Rosie the Riveter? The skill set of a 1940s housewife was understandably quite different to someone working building bomber planes. And there were more than 300,000 of them working in the aircraft industry by 1943. After the war, training was happening at scale in classrooms and on the job. It used a lot of lessons that the military had learned about transferring knowledge from one brain to another, which is great for certain types of skills and brains, but as we know, not all of them. It meant a lot of classroom training because this was more cost-effective if you have one trainer to take a whole class rather than having one-on-one job experience on the floor. Classroom training was also popular because it was less risky to production. All of the learning happens away from the factory floor. And while we'd like to say that this was more about reducing the danger to the employees that were still learning about those big heavy machines, it was probably also about reducing the risk of production getting slowed down if something went wrong. All right, we're moving into the 80s and 90s where training starts to equal investment. In the 80s, we started getting more and more intentional and designing training. It was revolutionary at the time, but as a discipline, we started assessing people beforehand to see what they actually needed to know and then evaluating them afterwards to see if it worked. This new methodical approach might have had a bit to do with the emergence of human capital theory in the late 60s and 70s. This was a new way of thinking about people, that their ability to produce things of value could be increased if we increase their skills and their knowledge. Human capital theory was a way to explain why people spend time and money on self-improvement. The thinking is that it helps us to increase our long-term earning capacity, so it's an investment that we choose to make as rational beings. Coincidentally, this was the same decade that Star Trek was airing on TV and introduced us to Spock, that lovably logical Vulcan. I feel like he'd approve of this theory, uh, even if it feels a little bit too sensible for me. Look, sometimes we just learn because we'd like to. Luckily, the business lords at the time were Team Spock, so this way of thinking helped them to see trading as an investment in their workforce, something that would improve productivity. Of course, we had to make sure that the theory worked. It's only logical, after all. So a bunch of models were created in the 80s to prove this return on investment. Problem is, Gathering the data was quite difficult, and for a lot of organisations it still is. Plus, it's not the only mindset that we want to be in when it comes to how we think about the value of learning. The 90s was a big decade for training. That link to employee performance was a big focus. People started working out that there was money in improving performance, and external training vendors started springing up faster than boy bands. They had skills lists, they had fancier ways of tracking results, and businesses were very happy to spend money to get these promised results. By this point as well, we were starting to have videos that we could play to people. This sped things up way more. Now, we didn't even have to have the trainer in the classroom with the people. We could just record them once and replay it indefinitely. And I do mean indefinitely, because I remember watching a VHS video in the back room of a fast food chain in 2009, and I swear that dude was wearing parachute pants. Computers and the internet supercharges it even further. 
Now, we don't even have to put people in the back room. We just email it to them to look at before they start work. Fortunately, this was about the time that we also started learning about learning. We were starting to look at adult learning principles, social learning theory, that whole systems thinking model where our brains are computers with short and long-term memory. We were also acknowledging that learning might happen outside the classroom or away from the computer screen. It could be a conversation. It could be networking. It could be watching somebody else in action. And we could choose to learn those things ourselves rather than just have it handed to us. It took us 50 years, but by the end of the century, we'd moved from training classrooms full of people on how to complete a specific set of tasks in our specific factory to seeing time and money put into developing deeper and broader skill sets as an investment in both the employee and also the business's bottom line. We've zoomed out from training and now we talk about learn. I'm going to hop off on a little bit of a side quest for a minute and talk about organization development. While all of this was happening, there was also a parallel process of organization development becoming a thing. Now, you might be thinking, why are we talking about OD? Well, if training was the origins of the learning part of our name, then organization development is the development bit. This bit of backstory really helps if you're about to have the fluffy fight with somebody, so feel free to grab a pen. Organization development is about using behavioral science knowledge, also known as psychology, to plan and apply a change in an organization's process. Very fancy definition, I know. The whole goal is about improving the effectiveness or the health of the organization. So it's kind of like learning, but at a company-wide level. Instead of doing something to increase one person's knowledge or skill, organization development is about doing things that help the whole organization grow and shift as a single mass. People often talk about it in terms of change management, increasing team effectiveness, developing leadership, organization culture. I like it because it uses the people improvement stuff that I get excited about, but at a scale that really makes a difference. Go big or go home, right? Now, some people feel very strongly that these are two quite different disciplines and others think that learning and development is part of organization development. I'm not getting into that argument. With the size of the businesses that we're probably talking about, those sorts of boundaries are very much a later on problem in my books. If you want to set up L&D properly, you can expect to be doing a bit of both, at least at the beginning. All right, so into history. Organizations as entities. Organization development started becoming a thing after World War II. Big part of this story was a workshop by Kurt Levine in the mid-40s that ended up teaching people how their behavior was affecting group dynamics and being perceived by others. It wasn't actually the goal of the session, interestingly enough, but that's what happened. Levine was actually the first person to coin the term group dynamics, and he caused a little bit of a stir by proposing that a group could exist as a separate entity, distinct from the sum of its people. You can see where the idea of an organization as an entity started coming from. By the late 50s, businesses were using this kind of training to help their employees work together more effectively at scale, realizing that it's not just about each person, but it's also about how all these people interact and influence each other. Now, a lot of us kind of assume that now, but it's interesting to know that this wasn't always the case. Fast forward to the 80s. 
quality management was the rage. It was an approach that leaned heavily on the way that Japanese manufacturers had started approaching production after World War II. You remember Back to the Future Part 3? They're in the abandoned mine shaft trying to fix the broken DeLorean car time machine thing. 1955 Doc Brown scoffs at this Made in Japan sticker on the broken circuit. He goes, oh, no wonder it failed. But 1985 Marty McFly is super confused. He says, all the best stuff is made in Japan. I did not get that joke for the longest time. But it's basically showing that between the 50s and the 80s, Japan had set and achieved such a high standard for quality improvement that it basically belonged in a science fiction movie talking about high-tech time travel. So that's the standard that the rest of the world was chasing. And the way that we get there is focusing on quality, both in the products and also in the process. Quality management was a game changer for the employee experience as well. It was about making sure that everybody had the ability and the responsibility to make sure that things got done right. Think employee development, more autonomy, less hierarchy, and basically realizing that paying attention to what your employees need and helping them develop would increase quality, productivity, and profit. Groundbreaking stuff at the time. The 80s and 90s were also when we got really into organizational culture, really taking that idea of the business as an entity to the next level. Now we're saying that it's got a personality, it's got habits, it's got its own weird quirks. Side note, the best way to find out about your organization's culture is to find the newest person in the business and ask them what was weird when they started. Weird can be good, by the way. I worked at a place where every new person commented on how friendly and approachable everyone was. Ask them about any unspoken rules that they've discovered, like whether you're supposed to ask if you don't understand something or just pretend that you know what you're doing. It's the whole invisible atmosphere that affects everything the business is trying to do, including change. And when we know what shape it's in, we can work with it instead of against it. Talking about change, the 90s were also all about strategic change. Like when training evolved into learning, this is when people started bringing together all the things the discipline already knew about big groups of humans interacting at work together. They started using them intentionally to drive and support large-scale changes in the business, ideally to improve profit. Okay, so we've made it to the noughties. Grab a snack if you want. You're doing great. This is where, in my research, I stopped for a cup of tea. There's a really good timeline in the research that I had to put this explanation together. If you want to get into it in more detail, I'll pop the link in the show notes. In the last 20 years, we have seen some wild changes. Even though L&D is more than training, I do want to talk about training for a minute because it's the most visible part of what we do for people. You know, it shapes how they see what we do. So the hype around e-learning deflated a bit when everyone realized that just recording a video or putting a textbook into a slide deck was not actually an effective or an engaging experience for learners. This period of time had a very lasting impact on some people. So they'll either expect everything to be delivered as an e-learning module that you just push out to people, or they'll have a very deep aversion to it because they've been burned too many times. More advanced technology has let us move beyond these types of static content delivery. People started being able to pull what they needed on demand in different formats, on different devices. 
Now we're trying to fit learning into the flow of work rather than making it a separate thing that you stop, do, and then go back to your real job. Josh Burson wrote about this in 2018. Again, I'll put a link in the notes if you're keen. His article has got a really cool diagram that shows how training technology and content delivery has chased the major developments in consumer tech. So from Google teaching us that we can just go and search for what we want to Slack and Teams being the connective tissue between all the other systems that we use, the place that we go to get stuff done in the flow of work. We started calling people learners at some point, and now we're trying to break that habit because we've worked out that they're more than just learners. They're people who we hope are learning, but who have also got a whole heap of other things going on at the same time. The point of this was to put their experience first so that they don't have to slog through another 45-minute training video that could have been a one-page PDF or a podcast. Now we're using marketing ideas to make sure that our content is interesting and to get people to want to access it by working out who they are as people and what they need. These are some of the developments that we've seen in training over the last 20 years. We don't do training for its own sake, though. Even from the very roots of LD, we were getting knowledge into people's heads for a reason, right? Well, we've expanded the list of things that we're here to do. By about 2008, thought leaders like Nick Van Dam and McKinsey were talking about LD having strategic roles in the business. Things like attracting and retaining talent. We covered this one a little bit last week, talking about how solving those peopley problems around getting and keeping good people can be a reason for setting up LD. Another strategic role for L&D is around developing those people capabilities. This is definitely that human capital mindset coming through. You know, we need the skills to pay the company bills and L&D is how you invest and maintain the bench strength of your workforce. P.S. If you want to talk about making smart investments, developing people and promoting them internally is usually much cheaper than hiring externally and tends to work out better in terms of long-term retention. Cool fact. Another role for L&D from this McKinsey model is around creating a values-based culture. This one feels a lot like organization development to me. L&D is part of building a values-based culture. Honest moment, this makes sense to me intuitively, but I struggled for a while to work out exactly how we're supposed to do that. I'm getting a bit of an idea now in my current role. We're starting to roll out our new performance and growth cycle at work. We're training our leaders to have regular conversations with their people about their goals, strengths, and opportunities for development, and making our year-end wraps more about looking forward than judging about whether someone ticked all the boxes and deciding how to pay them. I'll get back to you on how we're doing there. I think this one's going to take a while. Last couple of things that L&D can do strategically to contribute to the business based on this model. Building the employer brand. C.1, investing in people is sexy, and if you can get people talking about how you do that, that is free marketing for you to attract awesome people who match your vibe. And motivating and engaging employees. As I've said a couple of times, people love to grow. Most of us want to see a path for our development. We want to feel like we matter and learn something new. It's just how we're wired. I think this is something that we've always been good at, bringing the joy to the job. It's why L&D is the cool auntie, uncle, non-binary parental sibling of HR. The challenge is that sometimes this means we come across as fluffy or as a nice to have. Our power here comes from connecting that increase in engagement with performance, showing the impact of what we do on business results. That way, we're not expensive, we're an investment. This was all a good jump, but still not quite there. 
basically businesses were seeing learning opportunities as things that the business should offer to make employees happy so that they join us and stick around and are better at their jobs, which will then improve profits and something to do with culture somehow. Good news. McKinsey's kept on it and they've got a set of nine dimensions that cover what great L&D looks like. They released this one in 2019 and I really like it. It's called the Academy's Framework. Each letter stands for one of the dimensions. Who doesn't love a good acronym? I'm just going to list out all nine, but I'm not going to dig into all of them now. We'll come back to a few as we go forward. They are alignment with business strategy, co-ownership between businesses and HR, assessment of capability gaps and estimated value, design of learning journeys, execution and scale-up, measurement of impact on business performance, integration of L&D interventions into the HR processes, enabling the 70-20-10 learning framework, and systems and learning technology applications. It's a lot, right? Before going all in, it's good to check the work. Well, a lot of these dimensions line up with what LinkedIn Learning's latest report is saying about L&D as well. So if you want a good list of things to aim for with setting up your L&D function, this framework is a great place to start. But just a couple that I want to start with. Aligning with business strategy. We're now explicitly looking at what the organization is trying to do and working out what contribution we can make through learning and development to help get the business there. As well as being a smart business approach, this is something that really resonates with me as a person because I'm all about helping people get to where they need to go. Without giving away too much, place that I'm working, we went through a couple of acquisitions this year. So now is a good time for us to firm up our culture and our processes and get everyone on the same page. We're taking a good look at who our customers are, who we want them to be, and how we support them. And it's looking like our people are going to need some new skills and new knowledge to make all of that happen. It's exactly the same as last week. If you know the problems, you use your L&D powers to solve them, you'll be a legend. You'll also be more likely to get the budget that you need to do the job if you can show how it lines up with the organization objectives. Co-ownership with business units, I am obsessed with this one. HR overall is trying to trend back from being the hero of the story to being more of the supporting character. Dave Ulrich's got some great stuff on HR being the coach rather than the captain, which brings me so much joy. This makes a lot of sense for L&D as well, because I don't know about you, but where I work, I'm outnumbered about 300 to 1. If we look at just the managers even, there are still 50 of them and one of me. So if we want to get anything done, I have to be very smart about how I spend my time. One of the things that I've been doing is working with all of the members of the executive leadership team on what their team needs to move forward with their goals and their strategy. We've got a policy for dedicated learning time each week, and that's company-wide. But the only way that that's actually going to happen is if I work with each of the leaders to determine what that development time looks like for their people and why it's going to be useful. It's going to be slow going at first, but the plan is that people can start to understand this mindset and they can make good decisions on their own while I stand on the sidelines and cheer them on. 70-20-10 learning framework. I know you've just heard the whole evolution of L&D, but some people, many people, still think that L&D equals training. In a room, for a day, then back to work, and they're magically better at their job. 
if this string of numbers is brand new information for you. Basically, the 10 stands for 10% of total learning that should be formal, traditional training. 20% is about interaction with other people. And 70% should be things that you learn in the process of doing your job. There's a bit of debate about the exact numbers, but the point is that people need to understand learning is more than a workshop. If they don't, they're going to miss 90% of the work that you do. Or you're going to blow your budget on training sessions and wonder why it's not moving the needle. This is a big one for me because we haven't really had much of a training budget for a couple of years. So it's quite front of mind for our people as something that they're missing out on. I don't have the budget to send them all on courses. So I'm going to have to learn how to manage expectations and show them how they can grow in more than one way. All right. So we know where we've come as a discipline, right? bit of a wild ride from factory skill machine through to the strategic business partner that we always knew we could be. I don't know about you, but I did not see much fluff in that history between wartime techniques, economic theory, quality management, and technological advancement. But weirdly, this fluffy vibe still sticks. I think that it's because the most visible part of what we do tends to be workshops and building people skills. We've been applying intentional learning design principles to these experiences since the 70s. And we know that to have the best impact, these experiences should be pleasant. We could say fun, but that might set off the fluff radar because all some people see is Sharpies on butcher's paper. All right, so that's the fluffy part. Let's talk about expensive. Is it really expensive or is it valuable? Stuff costs money. We know that. It doesn't automatically make that stuff expensive. It's about whether the spend is worthwhile. That makes something much better. It makes it valuable. Human capital investment theory kicked us off to understand that when we spend time and money on improving skills and knowledge, there's a material impact on the bottom line of the business that does the spending. Deakin University and Deloitte released the results of their research project last year on investment in L&D. They found that Every additional dollar invested in L&D per employee was associated with an increase in business revenue of $4.70 per person on average. You want to talk ROI? That is the number that you bring to the conversation. The training and development industry knows this too. They got into their groove in the 90s talking about skills and businesses listened hard. The global corporate training market is massive, estimated to be worth $146 billion worldwide in 2022. For reference, that's about what the market cap for something like Nike, Intel, or Disney is sitting at today. And people seem quite happy to invest in them. It's not all about training. Remember that that experience and the exposure to new information is just as important as stepping away from the job to go learn. It's also usually more economical as well because it's less interruptions and the knowledge gets shared across a lot more people. When you're starting up L&D, costs are likely to be a big thing to come up against. Since you didn't exist before, you might not be in the budget yet. You might not even have a budget. Good thing I'm used to finding tools that'll get the job done for free. So how do we use this knowledge to spot and shape expectations? Not everyone that you're going to speak to has listened to this podcast. Please feel free to change this by sharing it with them, of course. But it means that they might be the 1955 Doc Brown to your 1980s Marty McFly and have a very different understanding of what you're there to do. 
if there's someone that you need to work with or someone that you need to make happy, this can be tricky. You can use what you know to start spotting, speaking their language, and hopefully stretching their expectations. To get you started, here are a few people that you might encounter in the wild. Please be gentle. It's not their fault that they haven't got the latest information. Plus, they've got their own agendas on what they think and hope that you're here to do. First contestant, someone in senior leadership who sees training as a transaction. Money goes in, skills come out, productivity goes up, business wins. They're okay spending money. They just want to see return on investment. This person is very human capital theory. You can speak their language by focusing on L&D initiatives that align with the organization objectives. You can excite them by introducing the 70-20-10 approach to learning, expanding their understanding of where skills can come from, and the fact that it's typically more economical than always sending people off on a course. You can stretch them by talking about the bigger picture of attracting and retaining talent through intentional focus on development opportunities and how it's really cost-efficient as well as motivating. Person number two, a manager who's always seen skills gaps filled with training. Put yourself in their shoes. As a leader of someone with a gap in their abilities, you want to see the problem fixed as soon as possible. And if someone else could do the heavy lifting on that, that would be great because you've got a million other things to do as well, right? Plus, training is awesome. It's memorable, it feels good, it's a change from the daily grind, so it's a good way to make your people feel happy and to stick around. In that sense, managers really do understand the strategic power of L&D better than most people. They're just stuck a little bit in that learning equals training box. You can speak their language by talking about the problem and the impact that it's having on the person and the team. You're going to need to get them excited to help you. When we do send people on training, managers are the ones who help people reinforce and retain the learning. Otherwise, about 90% of what someone learns gets forgotten within the week. Building relationships with that manager helps them to understand how big their role is in coaching and developing the people. It is going to be hard work, but it's very much worth it. And lastly, let's talk about employees. Your average person working in a business tends to have a real thing for training courses as well, which is totally understandable. I love a good workshop myself. It feels great. I'm getting smarter over the time in the room. I'm not saying don't do training. Just manage your expectations of what gets people excited. You could spend a month setting up regular collaborative internal product sessions or building a shared knowledge base. But those things that are in the flow of work are much harder to remember than that two-day management course that this person went on. Trust me, these examples are actually from personal experience. <laughs> you can speak their language by using this type of learning opportunity when appropriate and making it part of the process that they need to bring back what they've learned and share it with others. You can stretch them by asking to reflect on how they've learned to do what they already do. Did it all happen in a classroom or was it somewhere else? You know, were they maybe watching and talking to other people? Were there times when they did a quick Google of, say, how to do a VLOOKUP in Excel? These are all types of learning. If you get really stuck, help them think about how they learn stuff outside of work. In the last few months, I've learned how to fix a leaky toilet and also how to reset my car's key fob memory so that it doesn't keep adjusting my chair roll when I'm on the car. Both of those things I learned off watching YouTube. 
these are just a couple of examples of people that you might encounter when you're starting up L&D. I hope that this history tour has given you a good bird spotting guide so that you can work out where these people are coming from, how to make them happy, and how to start bringing them on the journey with you into modern learning and development practice. Making friends and understanding expectations will come in very handy for what we're going to talk about in the next couple of episodes, fighting for your life and putting cookies in the jar with key stakeholders. I really enjoyed putting this episode together. It's made me feel so proud of what we do and how far this discipline has come. From our origins to today, we're still all about helping people do stuff that they've never done before for their benefit and the business. It's pretty cool how it all lines up like that. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with somebody else that you think would find it useful. I'm serious about my mission to see it a million L&D functions, and that starts with wonderful people like you. If you haven't already, please subscribe as well. It'll save you time and it'll keep me honest. Remember, very good at meeting external obligations. And lastly, if you want to chat about this or anything L&D startup related, please hit me up on LinkedIn, Lauren Schultz. Very easy to find. I'll see you next time for more Starting Up L&D. 